Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by Adrian Clark, the tactical analyst, and by David Priest, the coach and columnist. As a fully paid up member of the Goalkeepers Union, David can identify with this week's guest, Aaron Ramsdale. The spotlight will be on him at Goodison on Saturday when he faces his international rival, Jordan Pickford. That, of course, will be Everton's first game under the management of Sean Dyche. A simple question in a complicated situation, Adrian. Can he keep them up? I think he can. Yeah, it's not going to be easy because Everton have been pretty awful so far this season. Just 15 points from 20 matches, only three wins. The home form has been a bit of a disaster as well. But he's used to being in these awkward positions, fighting for survival. He's he's hardened to it with his time at Burnley. And I was looking at this in terms of his win ratio, which is just shy of 28%, which... You know, on the face of it, isn't spectacular. But if you work that out, that if he matches that at Everton, he'll get five wins. And eight wins will get you in the ballpark to stay in the Premier League. I was looking at the average points that he earned during his time as a Premier League coach at Burnley. It was 1.1 point per game. Again, nothing to write home about, but it's his Burnley we're talking about. And um, and again, if they, if they average 1.1 points per game between now and the end of the season, they'll get to 35 points. Now, 35 points is kind of the new magical figure. It's the new 40 in five of the last six seasons, 35 points has kept you up. So what he's got to do is, is replicate the level that he had at Burnley. And look, in theory, with more talented players at Goodison Park, it's doable. So, so yes, he can do it, but he's got a lot of hard work to do between now and the end of the season. 
Well, he couldn't ask for a more challenging start, could he, Dave? When you think about it, okay, forget the stereotypes. There is a very, very good coach there, I feel. But what about the consequences of the chaos that he's walked into? You know, here you've got a club that failed to strengthen in January. Not a single player came through the door. That tells you what a job he's got. Yeah, he has. And you only have to look at the graveyard of managers that have preceded him to to see how, how big a job he's got. And it's okay saying that, yeah, he seems to be the right character to be able to handle a situation. But, you know, when you look at the likes of Ancelotti and uh, Rafa Benitez, people, people who've been there, done it, seen it all, you know, they thought that as well. But simply put, Everton have just been too easy to beat this season. And if there's anybody that's going to correct that, it's going to be Sean Dyche. And it, it should, for, for me, it looks like an easy win for him straight away. It's it's an it's an easy pick out to 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 see what's wrong. Out of possession have been awful, which in turn because they they've had numbers behind the ball, been really ineffective, and because the numbers behind the ball, they haven't been able to attack either. So that it, it hinders the 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 force up front as well. So it's an easy win for them, but also it's um I think it's probably it is the right decision when it comes to you know when it comes down to to choice between him and Bielsa. And I know a lot of people would have thought. What's the thought behind the recruitment process when you come between two sort of different characters like that? But they're probably a lot more similar than you think. You know, if the worst happens and Everton do go down, who's the best person to bring them up? Sean Dyche, yes, but Bielsa's done that as well. Does Sean Dyche get the club? Does he fit the ethos of the club? Yes. But look at what Bielsa did at Leeds to, to galvanise the, the fan base there. So it's... I think either way it would have been a, a, a good choice for them, but certainly he seems a really, really good fit for them. Mm. Arsenal, by contrast in the window, Adrian, a couple of pretty shrewd signings mm. there. You know, they had Leandro Trossard coming in, Jorginho, cost effective value as a six there with his experience. Why are some Arsenal fans a bit sniffy about him? I don't know. I really don't. I think it's because. Arsenal have been bitten a few times by ageing Chelsea players <laughs> that have rocked up and, and maybe not delivered. Obviously, the most recent was Willian, who was a bit of a disaster, let's be honest. And, and and yeah, a lot of fans are just fearing that it's going to be be like Willian all over again. David Luiz wasn't a huge success, I guess. There have been others as well. So, yeah, that's the reason. But if you think about it, this is a, this is a really clever signing, I think. He, he was third in the Ballon d'Or 15 months ago. So he's, you know, he, he, he's even though he's the wrong side of 30, he can still control a football match. I don't think there are very many midfielders that are better at receiving it in, inside their own half and, and circulating the ball. He's really, really good at that. And, and that's what Arsenal need if Thomas Partey is injured or unavailable for selection. So, yeah, they were desperate for somebody that could stand in for Thomas Partey or a Granite Xhaka they didn't have one. And now I think they've got an exceptional footballer that, that's got that winner's mentality, knows what it takes to climb the mountain. And I believe he would fit the style of play as well because he can move the ball on one and two touch, which is the way Arsenal want to play this season. And and for those people that, that say that he only passes sideways or backwards, well, again, the numbers don't actually show that. I think, you know, percentage-wise, he plays more forward passes than Thomas Partey. So we certainly has this season. So I think he's a great, great buy. By all accounts, inside the dressing room, 
they're really, really happy with the acquisition. It's um, it, it'll make a great difference. Yeah, well, there's a really buoyant atmosphere at Arsenal at the moment, understandably so. Aaron Ramsdale was thoughtful, insightful, and honest when we met. Now, I hope you enjoy our chat as much as I did. Welcome, Aaron. When I was last here, I spoke to Mikel, and I was struck by how galvanising his personality was. You know, obviously intelligent, you learn to expect the intensity, but also there's a real integrity there. What's he like to play for? Special. As you said, he galvanises the squad a lot, just by his, his demeanour and his attitude. The will for him to want to do well and win comes out in us, his enthusiasm on the training pitch around the place and his empathy as well is possibly a massive thing for myself. You know, he, everyone has different things going on outside of football and without putting himself in front of you too much, he will understand and knows about everything. He takes time to speak to you and find out what's going on. So there can be days where he could be demanding the utmost, which he does every day, but if you're having a bad day, he'll know why. He'll come and put his arm around you or see if you're all right, and then he'll change it for the different players. So I think that's why the people who he brings in and, and are excelling under him have a real sense of wanting to give back for him. Because that's the essence of modern management in a way, isn't it? We've had Pep Guardiola and Jurgen Klopp on the last two podcasts, and they're people managers. They want to know about the person that they're dealing with and you know, who plays for them. So it seems that Mikel is very much of that type. Yeah, definitely. And I think, obviously I can't speak for the other two, I've never worked underneath them, but I'd probably say our manager's more so that than them two. He's younger and he's coming. He sort of seen the transition when he was playing of how the game was going from inside the dressing room. So he understands that as well. For the likes of myself, he knows that he can be a little bit old school and try and get on to me and if I'm not performing or doing the right things in training. And then for others, he's softly spoken and gives them confidence and sort of a kick up the backside in a different way. So yeah, he's definitely a people's person, you know. Um, he's very easy to talk to and to knock on his door is very easy and it's um, there's still the fear factor there. But I feel like because, again, he's seen from both sides, he's seen the old school when he first started playing in Scotland and in the Premier League, transition into this sort of how it's going now. So, yeah, he's more of a specialist in that sense than most people, I reckon. Yeah. What about technically? Because I hear he, he works proactively with the goalkeepers here at Arsenal. So in general terms... What does he demand of you? Is it sort of things like you know defending space or cutting out crosses or through balls? That's sort of, what is he actually asking of you technically? Well, I'm the last line of the defence and first line of attack. The game model which we have at Arsenal is something I've never come across before. I don't think many teams will be doing what we're doing either. So yeah, so it's being proactive in defence, playing a high line. Cutting, he wants more cutbacks being cut out and crosses to be come for. And prime example, the United game, 
where I've come for a cross and I've dropped it and they've scored. The first thing he said in the change room was, well done, because he wants me to be proactive and help the team as best I can. And obviously there'll be mistakes along the way and he's the first one to say, I'll hold my hands up in defence and attack if you know, if you get lobbed from a long ball or you're high in possession and you're playing out and we give it away and you're in a wrong position. So he asks a lot of us, but because we work on it day in, day out and it's not he's not just asking us to do it and then sort of thrown us in the deep end, he works closely with our goalie coach and they share the same philosophy. So we're working with him a lot. A Is lot that unusual? A little bit because it's more of the game model that we're, he's asking us to do. We have to be involved. And a lot of the time when we do the tactical work when we're with the team, he's mainly talking to the goalkeepers. Because as I said, we're the first line of, of attack. He, that's how we want to play. And he's very good with that. He knows it's super difficult what he's asking us to do. So mm. there's that level of, I understand. And then on the Saturday, if we've been trying something in the week and we haven't been doing it for too long, he'll say, go and do what we've done. And mm. in the end, it's in your hands because you, you're playing, you see the game. So he's very good at giving us the base and working with us. And then at the same time, he's very good at sort of not making us do what he wants to do because things change on the pitch. Yeah. The manager also talks about living the game. In other words, sort of controlling the, almost like the emotional flow of it. And I think it was mentioned... I was at the Newcastle game in May where they managed to sort of disrupt your distribution. Can you explain that a little bit? Because I think it's an interesting concept. Yeah, so we set out in every game to control the game, dominate the game in possession. If we're dominating the game in possession, it means we'll do less defending. It means we'll have more attacks and more, more touches on the ball, making the opponents run more and things like this. Everybody wants to play a game of football where they're in control. We want to make sure that we know what we're doing and we also know what they're doing. If we're not doing things correctly on the ball, there's a lot of transitions, there's a lot of, a lot of times the lads are running back and then defending when they're tired. And We never really know what an opposition team is going to do. Mm. You, you, you have a plan for every team, but especially you take this weekend, for example, Obviously, Sean Dyche has been with Everton for four or five days. If that, yeah. So we have an understanding of how Everton played before. We have an understanding of how Sean Dyche likes to play. But it's completely different now. He's at a new club. He might change his philosophy slightly. So for us to eliminate them is how we want to keep the ball. Mm. Keep the ball up the, their end of the pitch and, and move teams around them. As I said, the Newcastle game was a prime example where we didn't control that. It's difficult to control it in, in certain games and certain teams and atmospheres, and it's something we're getting better at. So now we're working on the other side. So again, he, he leaves no stone unturned. So if we are in a chaotic game and we're not able to stamp our authority, we're now really sort of digging in and defending together as a unit and being able to sort of grind results out that way as well. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned there the Everton game on Saturday lunchtime. There's obviously going to be a lot of attention on you and Jordan. How do you describe your relationship? You know, can you be friends with a rival? Yeah, I think it's a little different 
in different positions. Uh, you grow up your whole life knowing that one person's gonna play. So you have subconsciously that in the back of your mind. When we meet up internationally, we're the same as you would be at a club with the other second and third choice goalie. You are respectful, knowing that they're trying to take your place, training hard, and ultimately you want the best for the team and the player. I'd have happily been at the World Cup, seeing Jordan put in a match of performance every game and winning the World Cup, rather than see him make mistakes and us as a team go out. So our relationships, I think it's personally very good. I think it's top, the way we train together. As I said, he's very respectful. We'll always have a chat with each other. But at the same time, there is that rivalry, which is healthy. He knows I'm coming for his spot. He knows he's doing everything he can to keep me out. And this is the thing with goalkeeping. It's People always say, oh, give us the real answer. But that, to me, might change for other people. But for me, I've grown up from the age of seven being a goalkeeper, knowing that I've got someone behind me and someone in front of me. So it's great. It's been top keeper for a long time. What's the attraction of the job? You know, being a goalkeeper, you're exposed, mm -hmm. aren't you? You know, a mistake that you make is magnified more than maybe a striker missing a goal. Yeah. What got you into it and what keeps you in it? What's the attraction of it? The enjoyment of diving around in the mud. Getting so you're still a little kid then? Yeah. And sometimes I lose that and I have to find it again. I certainly lost that throughout sort of my period with Sheffield United at the start and then performances drop and then towards the end of the season when I was playing better I just thought about enjoying it again and less of what people cared. It's, it's such a strange thing obviously the amount of pressure we have like you're saying about the mistakes and the scrutiny but I think that inner drive of being able to stand up to it and saying okay if I do make the mistake I know I'm going to get caught up in people's opinions and things but then on the other side people rooting against you if you prove them wrong there's some real sense of satisfaction there and I don't know it's one of them things where I, I, like, I like to help people so maybe it comes from that deep down that I like to if someone if my defender makes a mistake and I can help them out maybe that's where it comes from but it's just about the enjoyment for me and I know a lot of people say you play to enjoy but I'm not a massive fan of training uh, there's nothing on the line there's no fans there's no one screaming and shouting at me but if you actually see me in training I've still got a big smile on my face I'm still diving around in between training different drills someone will have a shot or just clip a ball into the goal and you'll see me sprinting 5-10 yards trying to make like a save and Things like that, so maybe it comes down to being a bit of a clown as well. Maybe it's about making people laugh and things yeah. like that. Because do goalkeepers have a certain personality profile? You know, it's a bit like, you know, you look at cricket and a wicketkeeper, they're usually quite little blokes, unlike mm. you, and they're pretty gobby. And if there is that sort of like expressive personality, do you have to keep that in check? Because, you know, you have to be pretty cool and analytical. I think times have changed now where there's so many different personalities in goalkeeping. If you look at the England squad, me, Jordan, are probably similar to each other than we are to Nick Pope. Mm. Nick Pope's a calm, really assured guy. 
really funny. He's got the same sort of mentality to be a goalkeeper, but if you watch us, he doesn't get too high, doesn't get too low, just goes about his business. If you look at me, I shout a lot more than Nick and wind the fans up and things like this. And then you, you watch Jordan and he's probably somewhere, probably in the middle. He can be very calm, but then you can see him and he's screaming at the top of his voice trying to help his defenders. So I think that as the game's changing, goalkeepers are as well. But yeah, I think there's something in your, our heads which we have to have to be a goalkeeper. But the difference of being a screamer and a shouter to calm and speaking at the at the right times is definitely coming into it more. Because mm. you know you talk about screaming and shouting, do people actually hear you? Because it's madness around you, isn't it? Some things, sometimes not. One of my coaches once said to me when I was younger and playing in front of probably about twenty-five people on a Saturday morning for the under 18s or 16s, he said, even if they can't hear you someone might so the coach might or it might get picked up on camera when you're playing later in your career so that covers your basis of someone turning around saying why hasn't the goalkeeper spoken mm. and um it probably winds me up a little bit how commentators said oh the goalkeeper needs to speak to his defender there when you don't know if he has or not it's just an easy way out of trying to say the goalkeeper hasn't done something right so there is times there's been games where i've not been able to hear my defender in front of me and sometimes, it, then it just comes down to the relationship you've got with that defender, knowing what he's going to do, him knowing what I'm going to do. And the look, I suppose. And the look. So sometimes it's covering your own back and being able to say, listen, I've spoken, but we couldn't hear each other. So you kind of just put it down to, it's one of them things. And mm. then other times it's how you build that relationship in training. Take for instance, I know how Rob Holding plays. So on this cutback, he knows that I'm going to be high, so he doesn't need to drop as much. Mm. So it's not putting anyone in the mud. He's not just leaving it for me and I'm not leaving it for him, but we just know how each other plays, and that's ultimately what gets you out of uh, these situations. Mm. A couple of things to end with, if I could. I spoke to Jamie Vardy on here about the art of goal scoring. You know, particularly you know, the movement that he makes, the runs that he would make, but and also how he reacts when he's one on one with a goalkeeper. You're obviously looking at it from the other side. What are you looking for in that situation when you've got a one on one or you've got a, a striker who you know, like a Vardy, is a natural finisher? It's so difficult because every situation, even with Jamie, if he comes into a one on one, it's completely different to the one before. So we're trying to proactively be one step ahead of him, even though he's in control. So I would try and put the pressure back onto him by being in a certain position in my goal. Maybe give him a little bit more of one side and he thinks I can put it in there now and sort of Snapchat it. And then I start to anticipate and go that side. We look for big touches, Obviously, then you can close the gap and it becomes a lot difficult for the strikers. But ultimately, it's just about they're in control in this situation when the ball's at their feet and they're running through and they're looking at you. They can do a number of things, chip it, go right, left, take it round you, take a touch and shoot. So it's all about putting pressure back onto them. And that's just by 
a number of things. One can just be just holding your ground, not rushing out. Because if you start rushing out, it might make the mind up of the striker. Goalkeepers come flying out, I'm going to take it round him or chip him. So it's a difficult, it's probably the one of the most difficult things because not one ball is the same. And although the finish might be the same, it's a completely different scenario for the goalkeepers. Mm. So as a final point, the mood around here you know, must be pretty buoyant at the moment. Now, I wouldn't expect you to make hard and fast predictions here, but how realistic is it to imagine this Arsenal team as Premier League champions? Um, it's what we want. I'm not going to sit here and say... We are going one game at a time. It's what we want. There's nothing getting talked about in the dressing room at the minute because we know what can happen and who's chasing us. But at this, uh, I'm sat here with you now and it, there's a real chance that we can do this. And people know that inside the dressing room. But it's not like the lads are openly talking about it because things can happen. We could go on and do really well and a team puts together a 17-game winning streak which could pip us at the end or things like that. So there's a real chance that we can do it. And it's every, it's what every person in the building from media to chefs, everyone's working towards it. It's not just the players and the coaching staff. So yeah, it's, it's such a weird thing, especially for me to think about 18 months ago, I was, I was relegated. Now we're sat here, but again, it's another strange thing that you put in February and you probably start thinking, oh, probably only got about 12 games to go normally. And we've still got 19, 18 games, so no one's ahead of themselves. But as you said, I, I can sit here and say there's a, there's a hell of a chance that, that we can do it. Well, all the best and thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Well, that felt like a real masterclass in the art of goalkeeping, right from the kid diving around in the mud. Did you identify with that, Dave? Yeah, 100%. I didn't agree with, the, with what he said about enjoying training, so I used to love training. But <laughs> you can see what he's trying to put across as well. He's got a competitive nature. You can, you can see that on the pitch, and he really rises to the occasion once there's a crowd watching him play. But... It's great to see that he, he refers to to having to be able to drag himself back to that sort of adolescent feeling of of wanting to be out on the on the pitch and and the enjoyment of it. And you can see in his the way that he he plays in his interactions with the crowds. He just he just enjoys it. And, it, and it, the best thing for him is that he feels it brings the best out on him. And I think what's happened this season, you see with the way that he handles himself on the pitch, he still has that little edge to him. But over the course of the, the last few seasons, he's learned from his past experiences and he's just tempered that down a little bit and he's found a nice balance where it, the way that he is benefits him, the way that he plays. Mm. I thought he was really revealing there, Adrian, on the impact and the sort of the, the empathetic personality of Mikel Arteta. You know, that sense of wanting to give back to him. Did that strike a chord with you as someone who's obviously close to the club? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's what a lot of people are saying about about Mikel and his relationship with the players. It's so important, isn't it? I speak to a lot of coaches in the work that I do and 
something that always crops up in almost every interview that I do is, is connecting, connecting with the players and getting to know the players on and off the pitch so that you're comfortable to, to speak to these guys about anything and they're comfortable talking to you if they've got any issues they want, they want raising because every, every player is unique and different and you can't treat everybody the same. And I think that Mikhail, because he's so detailed, because he's so intense, he is across all of the different personalities and, and can look after them as individual people. So, and that's going to please players. It's going to go down very, very well. And, and also as we saw in the documentary, he's pretty good at galvanizing the group with it, with his team talks and whatnot. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me. What I also like about Aaron, by the way, is that he stayed true to his own personality. Like he's, he's, he's come up, you know, he's played for Sheffield United. He, he almost, well, he did get relegated, didn't he, with Sheffield United. And it's a big step up to be at Arsenal, but he's retained the same personality. He's, he's as relaxed as he was there. He's not thinking, oh, I've got to act differently now that I'm playing for one of the sort of major clubs in English football. He's just still himself, winding up the fans behind the goal, celebrating like he will do, and, and just being a lad, a good lad in the dressing room. And I love that about him. And I, I think that's why he's so popular with the supporters as well, because I think they feel they can really relate to Aaron Ramsdale. He's, he's just a regular guy that it happens to be very, very good at goalkeeping. Mm. It was really intriguing, I thought, Dave, on Arteta's hands-on role technically with the goalkeepers at Arsenal. How unusual is that for a manager to be so involved and how effective is it? Yeah, it's quite common for, for managers just to sort of allow goalkeeping coaches and the goalkeepers to, to have their space. And as long as there's a thread going through that he gets what he, what he wants from his goalkeepers, it's more, that's the minimum and then just leave them to it. When you see, it's it's becoming quite a trend now that's that's the likes of Pep Guardiola and now Mikel are, are starting where it's, they're taking a real interest because they know how much of an input that goalkeepers have into the way that you play not just without the ball and defending the goal, with the ball and as Aaron pointed to in his interview. And it's it's not just that. It's not just asking what he wants. It's the detail that goes into it as well. And you can see it in the way that he plays. There's a lot of time when he's he's preventing chances being made by the opposition. Now, at the Premier League level, chances are at a premium. And because the strikers and the players, their quality is so much better. If you prevent those chances, then you're going to help your team up massively. And he does that in many ways. Outside of his box, he's coming out and clearing balls, intercepting when it's really close calls sometimes, but he's making the right decision. But he's become really good in 1v1 situations, really aggressive. And again, a great example for, for young goalkeepers out there and, and coaches as well. When he made that mistake the other week, I think it was against Man United, was it, when he dropped the ball? From the mm-hmm. corner, there was there was yeah. no retribution. There was no pointing of fingers. The manager took responsibility. I want you to come and do that. More often than not, you're going to prevent more goals than what you're going to concede in these situations. Keep doing it. And that was the end of the matter. And there was, so the, there's no second thoughts about, oh, should I have come, should I have not come? And no doubts coming into the keeper's head. And that's massive for a goalkeeper. Mm. It seems to be, Adrian, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem a natural leader. And in that, a dressing room with a lot of not very young players, but certainly less experienced players. How important is that, that almost they all fire off one another? 
I think that's what's happening. I really do. I think that obviously there's a senior leadership group, but the younger players have all got such key roles now within the team that they're, they're having to grow up fast and they're having to take on a lot of responsibility. And I don't think Aaron Ramsdale is anyone, is someone that wants to shy away from that responsibility at all. He, he, he loves it. I think he, he he's enjoying being part of a really promising young Arsenal team, as, as they all are. In terms of the future and, and whatnot, the same applies to him as it does everyone. He's just got to maintain the standards. He's got to make sure that he's doing the business to stay in the team. And the longer that he stays in the team, the more of, of a leadership role he'll take on. But he, he's nice and vocal. But but in front, I think you've got, you've got a quiet guy with Saliba, but Gabriel is, is a little bit more vocal. But ne- neither are that loud. Zinchenko is a leader by example, on, on the left-hand side, Ben White is similar. So it's not what you'd call anyone loud within that team. Thomas Partey is not loud. I think Granit Xhaka's the Mr. Vocal within the side. Everybody else is leading by their actions, really. But with Aaron Ramsdale, you can tell that he's also chipping away. He's encouraging. He's talking to the players all the time. And and that's great to see in a goalkeeper so young and, and who's still relatively inexperienced at Premier League level. So, um, yeah, he's, he he could be a captain one day, whether it's at Arsenal or not. He, he's he's uh, He's got that potential. Yeah, I thought it was particularly fascinating, David, about the sort of the dynamics, the mental dynamics more than anything else, of the relationship that he's got with Jordan Pickford. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot of attention on them at Goodison. Can you sort of compare and contrast the two for me, please? Both maybe technically and temperamentally. Do you know what? It's a really interesting one. I was asked to do this earlier on today. And even when you go back and you you look at the data, you look at the footage of them, you could slide a piece of paper between the difference between the two of them. And it, it, he said it himself. It's it, character-wise, they're, they're they're very similar. And and although he might call himself a clown, he's he's far from stupid. I think you could hear that in the in the interview. But as, as goalkeepers, they are very similar. Now, maybe one difference because the way that he's been asked to play in Arteta's team, he is more forthcoming when it comes to coming crosses. You could compare the two with their distributions. We think that now that Aaron's been asked to do more than he has been done at uh, the, the, the do with Sheffield United and, and Bournemouth with the ball. He's adapting to that very well, where it comes a little bit more naturally to to Jordan. Who's uh, who's always wanting to showcase how good he is with the ball, but again, whether he's been asked to do as much as what Aaron is at Everton, that's an, that's another case of matter. But um, yeah, it, it is. It's really dif- difficult to to compare. There's no real contrast between the two of them. And but what I will say that you look at the stage in their career where they are now, Aaron 24, Jordan 28. This season for me, for the both of them. They've both seem to have matured in the same year. Jordan now is letting his performances speak for themselves rather than making any headlines for any other reasons for any of his antics. He's just a much calmer goalkeeper. And that's probably the difference now where Aaron's getting that little bit maturity a little bit earlier. And of course, when you look at the, the, the two clubs that they're playing for, it's a totally different mindset. And I think that's why you've got to give Aaron a lot of credit. He's come from two relegations from the Premier League. He's been under the caution a lot of the games when he's had a lot to do. Sometimes, as Jordan has done this this season, it's a lot easier when you've got a, 
see it's a little easier anyway when you've got a lot to do it's easy to get yourself in the game when you're making saves but what Aaron's at attempting now is he's at a, make sure that not only is he making saves and he's making less of them because he's having less to do but keeping those concentration levels high to make sure that he is there when he's needed yeah he made a brilliant save didn't he recently in in the last game against um, Manchester United it was surely before he made that error I still I still think about that one and I think he should have come out yeah. and punched it maybe if he was going to be decisive. That's what I would have done in his shoes. But he made a brilliant reflex save just shortly before that from a deflected shot. And and yeah, I agree. He's, he's called upon less and less often, but he's ready for those moments, which I think is is a really, really big thing. So I think, um, what, all, yeah. I think what also helps him with his concentration levels is because... Because now what's required him from Mikel Arteta is that he's got to be involved all the time. He's got to be ready... There's a real um, accent on being able to uh, help these defenders out, defending the space, so he's never turned off. So there's not a chance for him to switch off. Now, of course, you could say that of every goalkeeper, but it, it isn't always the same. Sometimes when you, you know, if your team has a lot of the ball, there's times when you can just switch off, or maybe you just relax a little bit, where he's involving himself all the time because of the role that he's playing for the team. Mm. There was a long pause. Adrian, before <laughs> the final answer. <laughs> Very long part. He was careful to avoid <laughs> assumptions, but they are daring to dream, aren't they? Yeah, so they should. So they should. And look, Arsenal have been the best team in the country this season, playing a lovely brand of attacking football, and they deserve to be where they are, at the top of the tree. I think everyone at Arsenal is, doesn't want to get ahead of themselves because City are capable, even though they've not really hit the heights that you'd expect. They are capable of going win, 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 win. And 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 Arsenal are bound to hit a few bumps in the road in the second half of the season. I think that's that's only natural. So yeah, no one wants to tempt fate or 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 start showing off about it. So so well done to him for for avoiding your question. But I think they they do believe that they're good enough. I do now. And you know, at the start of this season, none of us would have would have thought this was this was possible, but if sta- if they sta- if they maintain their current standards, Arsenal, I don't think they'll get caught because they've been exceptional. Do you agree with that, Dave? Yeah, hundred percent. And just spend a bit of time going over some old documentaries. Uh, you know, watching as much as I can and taking as much as I can in at the moment. I actually went back and looked at the uh, the Arsenal documentary, the All or Nothing. And it's great watching it now in retrospect when, you you know, now you can start putting the pieces together, the little, little bits of the jigsaw. Because sometimes in isolation, when you see all these little things that Arteta's doing in the dressing room before games and in his team meetings, sometimes they can come across as a little sort of, I don't know, there's a lot of Mickey taken out of some of the situations, but you put them all in sort of in sequence and you can see what he's trying to build. And, and for me, looking back at that documentary from last season, the, the 4-2 win at Chelsea when um, Eddie and Ketia scores two goals. That, for me, looking back, seems the turning point in that squad because they lost a few games before that. There was a little bit of pressure building and there's still some fans questioning what Arteta was doing. But from that moment on, the team sort of have built this belief and all the work that he's done up to that point, that's when it started to turn for him, I think. Mm. You mentioned Chelsea there. You know, while we're on goalkeepers as well, Adrian, is Kepa a sustainable choice for Chelsea? Because it's about the only position they didn't strengthen in January, isn't it? It is. I don't know. I don't think he's been bad at all. I, I think he's, um, I mean, you look, numbers-wise, he's prevented 
an awful lot of goals this season with, with some good saves. He surprised me. I didn't rate Kepa. I mean, David will have a much better steer on, on, on this than me. I wasn't convinced at all about Kepa initially, but I actually think since Mindy came in and he's been given a second chance, we've seen a slightly improved Kepa. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, of course there are better goalkeepers around, but Chelsea can't buy, can't spend a hundred million pounds on each position in one window, can they? So yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll have their eye on it, but I'm staggered actually that Chelsea didn't, didn't buy a striker with the money. I know they got Joao Felix in on loan, but he's out for a little bit, but yeah, I was surprised they didn't didn't spend on a striker. I don't think goalkeeper is an urgent position for them. They've got Kepa, they've got Mendy. We need to look, don't we, David, at what they're actually getting for their money. You know, Mudrick's cameo suggests that he will excite, but, you know, will he prove any more than just an adornment? You know, Benfica turned an 8.8 million summer investment into 107 million quid. With Enzo Fernandez. You know, he's inexperienced. Okay, he's, he's richly talented. Is this all a great grand gamble? In the individual case of Fernandez, probably not. I think that he's he's an upgrade on Jorginho. Physically, he's better. You know, he can get around the pitch a little bit, bit better. But also, his range of passing is far greater than Jorginho's. He adds a little bit more protection in that back four as well in the, in the role that he plays. If Graham does play him in a sort of a single pivot as well. And I think the problem that he, he's going to have with this price tag is that people are going to expect fireworks. £160 million player, they're going to expect fireworks and all singing and dancing when he's just very good at what he does. And what he does, he gels, he'll gel everything together. And Graham Potter will need players like that simply because... He's got so many moving parts to gel together now, you know. And you have to have somebody like that who you're going to have there long term, who you can form in the way that you want. Because he's still a young player and be influenced a lot in the in the way that he plays. I think in the long term, the money will be well spent. But just to go back to to Kepper, I think that um, it, it isn't a position that needs rectifying at the moment. I think in the future there, there will be changes there. I'll be very surprised if they don't go, go in for Robert Sanchez. That's nothing that I know from behind the scenes. That's just my opinion. But certainly in the last, if you look over the course of the last 12 months, and certainly since Ben Roberts came as goalkeeping coach with Graham, there's been a vast improvement in, in Kepa. He's made a much more solid goalkeeper. He's calmed him down in his movements uh, in and around the goal. And if you look, it doesn't matter what statistics you look at, in the past 12 months, He's pushed himself up to the top of all of those, if not the top, the you know the top five at least, which he was way outside previously to that. So a lot of credit has got to go to Kepa for for coming back from almost an unassailable situation where he you know everyone thought he was you know Mendy would come in, that was him finished. So fair play for him to come back, but also credits for for Ben Roberts in in obviously having a big influence in his turnaround as well. Mm, yeah, you mentioned Graham Potter in passing there. You know, there's going to be huge, or there is huge pressure on him. He himself admits that it's going to be difficult to get all these players, you know, into the same squad, let alone the same team. You know, he's a bit like the old woman who lived in a shoe and had too many kids and didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know, he's got some more coming back. James, Chilwell, Sterling, Loftus-Cheek, apparently going to be available for Fulham. But they need to win that game, don't they? 
Yeah, they do. Yeah. I mean, they need to get their season going. It's been, it's been a disaster, hasn't it? Probably at both ends of the pitch. That's why when, when David talks about Enzo Fernandez being that sort of glue that holds things together, there's that pressure on him to protect a back four that's been quite wobbly this season. They've given up way too many chances, far more than Chelsea used to give up in, in the first half of a the season. They, yeah, they're absolutely not secure up until this point. So there'll be pressure on him there. But also going forward, creating very little, not not got very many quality chances. I think for XG in open play, they're, they're below mid-table, Chelsea. So, yeah, Fernandes has, has, has got to sort of facilitate those those quality players around him by playing, you know, earlier high-class passes into them. And um, you mentioned the fullbacks there. I think as soon as they're back, I think we'll see a very different Chelsea. Reese James and, and Ben Chilwell will, will make the world of difference. And when you chuck in Mudrick, the, the explosive pace that he's got, I do think down the sides, they're going to be tremendous to watch. And that's one thing about Enzo Fernandez. He's got great diagonals in his locker. We saw that in the World Cup final, pinging the ball out to Angel Di Maria for fun. And he will do the same to Mudrick and he'll do the same to Reese James. And and I think, yeah, Chelsea, they'll, they'll get better. They have to. Graham Potter will get them going. He's a great coach. I think his character is, is pretty... Seems quite chilled out. I mean, I saw his press conference earlier. He's nice and relaxed and laid back, cracking gags. I think he, yeah, I think he'll be all right. He's just, but but managing those big egos over the next 12 months, so many of them, and, <laughs> and nursing them through weeks where they're not involved in the match day squad is going to be a real test. I'm sure, well, David, having worked in the game recently, will, will know what it's like dealing with modern players that don't that don't play. Can only imagine, you know, superstar players that that don't play. That that's, that must be tough. Um, I don't envy him that job. I hope he's got some good assistance around him, Graham Potter. Yeah, he's got some explaining to do to to Ziyech. I know that for a starter, anyway. But but uh, on Ziyech, by the way, on that straight away, my thinking on that was if I'm Graham Potter, and I thought about this last night, so I was listening to the radio. I thought the best thing he can do is say, Hakim, come here. You're in my squad at the weekend. Don't worry about what's happened. It's a, it's a mess up, not your fault. You know, it shouldn't have happened. But I'll tell you what, now that you're here, I'm happy you're here. Get in my squad and I, you will be involved. And it just kills it. It kills that sort of, that feeling where where he's in limbo. And by the sounds of it, he has put him into the squad straight away, which I think is good management. Mm. Chelsea have spent £250 million since they lost at Craven Cottage three weeks ago, David. Newcastle, you know, who could probably do that, you know, without breaking sweat? They've only paid or only paid forty-five million pounds for Anthony Gordon. What do you make of that? As a player, I can see that it's something that probably is missing at the moment. You've got Alan St. Maxim, who's not really firing all cylinders as he has been previously for the club. And when the club wasn't doing great, he was the one shining light. Now everything else is working apart from him. So it's it's that little bit of inventiveness, bit of dynamism uh, going forward that's, that they're probably missing a little bit, and he, and he brings that. And, of course, it's the markets that they're, they're shopping in now, they, they probably could have had a lot more options than just Anthony Gordon, but it's he's obviously not happy and wanted to, to leave Everton, and the situation just worked out best for everybody. Yeah, Newcastle at home to West Ham on Saturday evening, Adrian. 
but obviously the fans' focus will be on this 68-year wait for a trophy. Would you agree that once they get that first trophy, it's almost like a natural stepping stone to them becoming a super club? Oh, definitely. Yeah, they're on their way, aren't they? With the, with the ownership that they've got, with that financial muscle, I mean, they'll be hard-pushed not to make it a big seven. I mean, it's inevitable that that's going to happen. I was up there recently for the quarter-final win in the Carabao Cup against Leicester, and whew, they were dynamite. Absolutely brilliant. Wiped the floor with Leicester City that night. And the, but just the buzz around the ground was was a joy to behold, really. I'm so happy for them because they had to put up with a lot of dross for quite a long time. And it's just chalk and cheese. Yeah, it's it's exciting times. And I think in that final, and obviously when it gets closer, we'll talk about it in more detail. But I think it's pretty much a 50-50 final. I think Newcastle United this season have, have been every bit as good as Manchester United. So hard to score against. And I give them I give them a shot. I really do of, of lifting it at Wembley this season. Yeah, it's, it is exciting. Quickly on Anthony Gordon, I think obviously the front three at the moment or or has been Almiron, Wilson and Joel Linton. Obviously, Sam Maximan has been coming off the bench. Just having one more winger, Anthony Gordon, does make sense because Almiron, was it a hot streak that is unsustainable? Is Joel Linton actually better in a deeper role? I think it just gives Eddie Howe more tactical options bringing in Gordon. Manchester United at Wembley for the first time in five years, David. You know, more immediately, they're at home to Palace on Saturday. Do you think it's going to be a surprise if they don't win something this season? Well, give, some, give themselves a great chance. I mean, they're, they're still in all competitions that they're, they're starting, are they? Yeah. I went to watch them a few weeks back, just, just before Christmas, when um, when the, the game started up a game after the World Cup. I went to the Burnley game in the, in the Carabao Cup. And you can understand it. You forgive them for being a little bit rusty. You know, they, everyone had been all over the place, and they just come back from from where they've been to with the international teams. And I got the feeling that they were very had a great structure in the way that they played. And you added that with a few flashes of brilliance from Ericsson, from Bruno Fernandez, from Rashford, and it just really gave them a, a more solid look to to the side. And they've given themselves a real good platform to to win games and. Now what that's done is just bumped everyone's confidence. From the, the the form that Marcus Rashford's in now is um, he's given them a, a, another dynamic. He's a real danger all the time. He's got real confidence in front of goal, and and so they're, they're in a real good place at the moment. Of course, the the injury to Christian Eriksen's come at a bad time for them as well because he's been influential in that as well. But I think um, Sabat has coming in's been a it's a good solution for them because they're going to need him in there as well. Whether it's you know to to give Casemiro a rest or to play as a, a replacement for Ericsson, they they're, they're re- really going to be short of numbers. I think there's only three centre midfielders now, plus Fre- those two plus Fred, that are fit at this moment in time. So it's um, yeah, he's going to have to do a lot of heavy lifting for a lone player. I think Manchester City, Adrian, the rationale for Pep Guardiola getting rid of Yao Cancelo, who you know predictably enough was praised to the heavens by Nagelsmann when he made his debut on Wednesday night. Is this basically down to nothing more than a timely imposition of managerial authority? Could be. Yeah, I think so. We won't know, will we, what went on behind the scenes. But some players are just able to handle being out of the team better than others. And 
uh, reading between the lines, I just don't think he's a very good sub. Someone that will probably just moan and sulk and, and kick off behind the scenes if he's not in the starting lineup. And 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 why isn't he in the starting lineup is probably the so Pep Guardiola, by the way, has had to make that call. I think for the benefit of of the the rest of the squad and the morale for the second half of the season, I think he just thinks, you know what, I'm not going to be bullied into playing him. I need to keep the squad happy. I will let him go, which is which is a big decision, and he shows strong authority there, Pep Guardiola, because it weakens his squad massively. He's he's been in the PFA Team of the Year the last two seasons, Shao Cancelo. He's absolutely sensational player, but. Pep Guardiola has his ways. And for me, I've, I've looked at this earlier in the week for a piece I wrote, and it's Nathan Ake, I think, that has done for, for Jao Cancelo. He's been excellent this season, either at centre-half or at left-back. And as we know, Pep always wants one of his fullbacks to be able to play centre-half. And it's been Kyle Walker, ordinarily, which allows Cancelo to come in midfield in that 3-2-5 build-up phase that they that they produce. Now, this season, Carl Walker's been a bit off it. He's been injured. Ake's been excellent. So he, he he's happy to use him as that sort of hybrid left-back. Where does that leave Cancelo? It kind of leaves him out of the team unless you put him on the right. Now, he's preferred Rico Lewis. He's liked what he's seen of Rico Lewis in that sort of hybrid midfield role that, that Cancelo was performing on the other side. So I think it's tactical. I don't think it's personal against Cancelo. I just think he looks at Ake and Rico Lewis and he likes that at the moment. Joao Cancelo said he didn't like it. Pep Guardiola said, okay, get out then. <laughs> so it's it's um, it's a bold decision because they're weaker in the second half of the season for his absence, I think. Does it? No sorry faces, I think, was the line, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, speaking I of which... Dave, I bet Dave saw a few of those at Sunderland at times, I, didn't you? I've, I've, been, I've been one a few times in my career, I tell you <laughs> <that>. <laughs> so, And so have I. <laughs> uh, probably a few uh, sorry faces at Liverpool at the moment. You know, well, they're at Wolves yet again on Saturday. It seems they're keeping their financial powder dry in preparation for the summer and maybe a new ownership structure. Is it as simple, Dave, as Jude Bellingham or bust? It's not, but also if they do get Jude Bellingham in the summer, then it, it means that whatever happens this season will be worth it. And uh, whatever they've gone through and the, the lack of investment, certainly in this January window, it'll all be worth it for the for the fans because he will make a big difference. But I think it's when you look at the trying to pinpoint the problems around the side at the moment. Everyone will go towards the, the midfield. And yes, there there is problems there. Of course there is. But it's it really is a general squad and, and team problem. Everyone points towards the lack of intensity. They were called mentality monsters and they were physical monsters. Now it, that's not the case. And I think that goes in hand in hand. Really, if you're a mentality monster, then the desire and the will to press and to win the ball back, then that goes hand in hand. And once that one, you, you lose the first thing, then you lose the second as well. It's not a case of not being as fit as what they were before. It's how does Jurgen Klopp turn that around and and get them back being mentality monsters and not mentality care bears. <laughs> and and I, I only said that because I thought of mentality care bears and I wanted to say it, so I've said it now. <laughs> He's an innovator, are Dave? Uh... <laughs> Okay, so is it time, do you think, Adrian, given all that, for Liverpool to bite the bullet and play Trent Alexander-Arnold in midfield? (laughs) 
It's a good question. I think he's good enough. I think it's worth a try. I really do. There is a slight weakness there with him defensively. I think concentration-wise, but just the way he plays, he he needs to be occupying those advanced areas to to make a difference for the team. So there has to be a compensation elsewhere. So if Jurgen Klopp sees that as a as a deficiency that's not worth persisting with, he's got to find some some other role for for Trent. He is capable. He is capable. Um, I am surprised that that he's not been utilised there really up until up until this point. So yeah, no, that's a that's a nice idea. I do think Jude Bellingham would be a, a total game changer for Liverpool. That, that's certainly be, be a game changer for most clubs. That if he joined them, wouldn't he? He's that he's that good. But um, yeah, interesting times ahead for Liverpool. It feels like they're in limbo, waiting for new ownership, doesn't it? And if their new ownership are as um, ambitious as Chelsea's, then, um, yeah, there'll be, there'll be a lot of spending in the not-too-distant future. Well, well, Chelsea, you know, lest we forget, outspent La Liga, Serie A, the Bundesliga and Ligue 1 combined in January. And the Premier League clubs themselves spent a record £815 million. Now, that's... £2.8 billion across the season. You know, some loose change there, isn't it? Is that sustainable, Dave? I'd say eventually no. And I I think that it has to come to a point when, not that the money runs out, when it just comes to a point where people just say no. Because I think if you look at the way that the game's run now and the, the money that's being spent and the money that is coming into the game, for example, if you if, if you said to every club that next season and from the next season you can only spend half as much money as what you would spend, say half as much money, maybe it's not Chelsea because that even <laughs> half as much money is still a lot of money. But for most clubs, if they if their outlay is half as much money, and they're still getting all this this influx of of wealth that's coming into the game, instead of being paying all these ridiculous transfer fees, that money could go to other places. It could go into the infrastructure of the game inside at the club and around the club, in the community. It could go into supporting the women's game. It could go into charitable foundations. It, it, there's so much more that could be done with this money than just being passed around between a few rich owners. And, of course, it, uh, when it comes to the, the money coming from the, the TV rights, there has to be a point when it comes when people just don't have in, as much money to spend. And I know there's a lot of money comes in from international TV rights and, and things like that. But there has to be a point where we say that like enough is enough because it's it's just going to get astronomical. We've been saying this for so long though, David. We've been saying it for years, haven't we? I, I remember when the first £100,000 a week player picked up that that salary. It's like, this is unsustainable. No, no one, you, we, we can't go beyond this. And here we are with players, you know, earning three, four, times that amount now it's it's crazy isn't it i think there should be a, a tax put on transfer fees that that does allow some of that money to be put back into the game you know agents fees need to be capped and i think that that some kind of percentage share even if it was one or two percent needs to to go back into english football into grassroots because it is it's a sickening amount of money that is just swilling around and uh, among a load of rich, rich people and rich owners. It, it, it's a strange environment, isn't it? Because it does feel like the TV rights is aren't going to keep going up. I think there, there is change around the corner with TV rights. It's almost as if, and we're seeing this with United 
and with Liverpool, the change of ownership and, and Chelsea to some degree is, is the owners now, obviously it's different for Chelsea because he was forced to sell really, but owners are, are willing to spend this money because they know that eventually someone else out there will be willing to pay even more money than they did for that super club and, and they can walk away with a healthy profit having having spent crazy money in the interim period. That, you know, I don't think that's really healthy for English football and it's it's, it's not great at all. But we, we talk about the, the resistance that came when the the European Super League was being being mentioned and being bandied about. Mm. The Premier League's got its own Super League. If you look at those those top clubs now, you know, look at Chelsea and Man City, obviously, Newcastle coming into it. When the takeovers happened eventually at Liverpool and Manchester United, even though the likes of Bournemouth are spending as much as they are, the rest are just going to still going to blow everyone else out of the water. And I know that there'll always be the case, and it's always been the case, that so there'll be teams that have more money than others. Of course that, but really, it's just got to get to the point where we just, like I said, enough's enough, like, you know? Very quickly, the, the rest of Europe, the, the other European football giants, I don't know how long they can sit and sit and watch this go on without trying to do something about it. That, I think, is is the concern. There is such a huge disparity between English, the wealth of English clubs and the spending power and, and what they can do. So, um, yeah, there will come a point where I think they they all group together and, and find a way to, to intervene. I don't know how that's going to happen, but I think they, they will feel they have to. Well, increasingly, if I look for common sense, my eyes are cast towards the South Coast and Brighton. Their owner, Tony Bloom, refused to bow to pressure from hyperactive agents. He made sure if they sell Moises Casado and Alexis McAllister, they'll do so on their own terms. In January, they picked up two intriguing young players for relative loose change. Argentine midfield player Facundo Buonotti and Yassin Ayari, signed from Swedish side AIK. Business as usual, in short. So thanks then to our resident financial experts, David and Adrian, for their insight. Thanks also to Aaron Ramsdale. There's a lot more to him than meets the eye. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Want to know what it takes to make a million bucks? Check out My First Million. Every week we dive into different business opportunities and explain how to pounce on them. From one-man online operations to brick-and-mortar strategies, we cover it all. So whether it's your first million followers or dollars, start getting inspired with My First Million wherever you get your podcasts.